the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about, of course, COVID-related issues. But tonight, we're talking about employment law and how COVID has affected certain cases in uh, employment law. With us, we have two employment lawyers, uh, Leland Vincent and Mike Madden. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us again. Nick, thank you for having us. It's uh, always a great pleasure to be on The Advocate. Great, great having you guys with us. Uh, The last time we had you on was sometime in June when we were already going into about three or four months into the pandemic. And who would think that uh, into uh, March we're still talking about the pandemic? We're still living the pandemic. I, I would assume that for over this about a year that we've been involved with COVID and the the viciousness of the virus and also the changing landscape of how we go to work, how we wear masks, and how we have different types of employees' rights, that uh, some some cases have popped up in your experience. Uh, what what have you been seeing that has now probably become a one-year routine with regard to employment law and employment issues that are related to COVID? Well, we specialize in uh, workers. Yeah. Uh, we specialize in workers' compensation claims, so we've been monitoring how the work-related injuries have been treated, uh, especially in regard to this uh, COVID-19 uh, situation. Uh, when we were on with you last in June, uh, basically at the crisis point regards to unemployment claims in Ohio. Um, and as of right now, I mean, I cannot make a statement about the general economy, but uh, unemployment claims fell about 12,000 last month. Uh, in April of 2020, there was about 998,000 unemployed Ohioans, and currently now we're at uh, 314,000, which is good because we're showing that people are now getting back into the uh, workforce. I think currently we're at a rate of about 5% for unemployment, and uh, I think this is due to uh, vaccination and uh, more uh, responsibility for people being able to go back into the workforce. Now, though the numbers of COVID-19 is down dramatically, and as I said, it's part to the vaccinations and uh, the uh, better personal responsibility, wearing masks and uh, self-quarantining, the majority of the population, I believe, should be vaccinated by late summer, early fall. Um, and now we're dealing with a period where the, I guess, the curfews have recently been removed. Is that correct from your understanding, Michael? Most of them have been lifted, and I know bars and restaurants are back to their full schedules. So the main question becomes, will somebody who's working at a bar or restaurant who is exposed to uh, COVID-19 then have a compensable workers' compensation claim. Now, historically, workers' compensation claims, uh, you have to have an injury that, occur, that occur, occurs sorry, within the scope of employment, such as a factory worker who strains their shoulder while moving heavy objects, 
uh, a nurse or an SPNA uh, treating patients. But generally how the Bureau views uh, the COVID-19 claims is that the first responder claims were the ones that were originally going through. However, the Bureau now looks at it as in the regards to the exposure. COVID-19 is generally seen as a communicable disease and is not generally considered a workers' compensation claim because people are exposed in a variety of ways. Um, and there are a few jobs that have a specific hazard of people contracting this disease. Um, so it's, I guess you could view it as someone who catches the flu while at work. You can't say that's a compensable claim. So... I have a question, like a legal question with regard to that. Um, if you're an employee and you're going to work, you have to be at work, and there's a clear situation where you can articulate where the source of the COVID infection came from. Someone comes to work and is allowed to be there without a mask on and is sneezing and showing signs of an infection, they have a fever, and uh, the other signs and symptoms of having COVID. So in other words, if you had a good factual basis that you can articulate that, you can associate the severe and significant exposure while at work, that, does that get you anywhere today? It might. This is Michael Madden. Each case is going to be on its own merits and will be adjudicated through the workers' compensation process, it's going to be difficult to show that you contracted COVID-19 at work versus in the general population, but cases can be made. And some will be granted, some will be denied. Fortunately, the workers' compensation system is a case-by-case -case basis. And historically, we had a case where a woman contracted herpes at work, and we were able to show the strain was the same one as a resident of the facility had. She contracted it by touching the tray for his meals and accidentally touching her face. It was a very difficult case, but we did win that one. Normally, cases like that are difficult to prove, same with the COVID, but if the facts are right, we can take those through. And if you well, believe that's, that's that you good. did, and if you believe that you were exposed um, to COVID nineteen at work, please call us. Because as I said, it's on a case by case basis, and at that point in time, we can assess you know the validity of the claim. Well, that, that is so good. Uh, the the situation uh, is good in the sense that I heard there was some talk earlier on that the state legislature was going to pass some statutes uh, creating an immunity from any kind of litigation uh, resulting from COVID-19. Uh, has there been any laws that are prohibiting these kinds of lawsuits, including workers' comp, or is it still a case-by-case -case basis, as you mentioned? As far as we know, it's a case-by-case -case basis. We haven't heard of any uh, laws that would uh, provide immunity to employers for uh, workers who are exposed uh, to COVID-19. Well, it's interesting because th this is sort of a legalistic process, even though it's a bureaucracy. Uh, like someone who slips and falls in a store, they have an obligation to figure out what they slipped on and 
need to know the details. Someone who might be exposed to COVID in the workplace, uh, at the time that this is fresh in their mind, they should jot this stuff all down and take good notes, don't you think? Uh, yes, they should. Let's hope they do that. Do you have clients who come in who know all this information because they they did take good notes and they do remember it? Uh, yes, we do. Um, there is a secondary source involving uh, COVID-19. We've had uh, injured workers come in who have exposure claims, inhalation claims, due to the cleaning agents they're using specifically to combat COVID-19. And those consist of rashes on the face, rashes on the hands, uh, and breathing problems. So that's another thing that we're also looking to in regards to these COVID-19 cases as, a, as an offshoot. Looking at it from the other side of the desk, uh, the employer side, uh, to make sure that you're, not only your employees stay safe, but that you don't get into lawsuits or workers' compensation claims for, for spreading COVID, what, what kind of things should employers do at, at this point? I think that the employers need to work at cleaning the offices very carefully, having very set policies for mask wearing and distancing. There's no way to make it a foolproof system, but just common sense and good hygiene will work best. They should have the hand sanitizer available in multiple areas, as well as wash stations with soap and water so that people can clean up and be less likely to transfer the disease to other people. Well, that's good. It's better not to have COVID run through the, the offices uh, or to, through the factories or wherever people are working. Have you run across any employers that uh, sort of let COVID run wild and you, you ended up with a lot of workers' comp clients out of them? We haven't personally seen anything. Um, we've had employees uh, who are basically the, I guess you could say COVID managers. They're at the, the frontline area. They're taking temperatures. Uh, they're checking people in, and they said that the employers are taking all the appropriate measures they can to combat a massive spread of, of COVID-19, which could, you know, cripple a factory if that were to happen. Well, that's true, because if they have one case that is loose in, in a factory or an office, does that whole office have to quarantine then, or are we, do we still have quarantine rules? I, I guess it's uh, on a case-by-case -case basis in regards to the proximity of the individual to the others. I mean, if we're talking about a close-knit office where you have maybe five or seven employees and someone's ex exposed to it, then you may do the quarantine that way. But as it, in regards to large scale, I, I could not comment. Gotcha. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Mike Madden and Leland Vincent, two employment attorneys. We're going to talk about, well, we are talking about workers' compensation cases. We're going to be back after these words, talking about uh, other things dealing with workers' compensation, seeing how the system runs. We'll take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to two employment lawyers, Mike Madden and Leland Vincent, 
uh, about uh, COVID-19 and workers' compensation generally. The last segment we talked about COVID-19 and how does that uh, affect workers' comp claims in the workplace. But uh, there, there are a couple of things that have changed over the recent times. Uh, one has been the statute of limitations. It used to be two years to file a claim. Well, what are we looking at now, and, and how has that change been working out? Uh, they reduced the amount of time to file a claim to one year. And that is catching a lot of people by surprise. Many attorneys, practitioners who have done this for you know, 10, 20, 30 years were not aware of the change and still thinking they had two years to file. They might be caught in a pickle with that. People really need to get to an attorney right away to file a claim and to make sure they have perfected their rights under the law because they could easily miss deadlines to file the claim, to file an appeal. Um, it's very, very short. It's one of the shortest statutes on the books. Most statutes that is are between two and seven years. So... I would recommend to anybody who's hurt at work or even thinks they're hurt at work to consult an attorney right away to make sure they don't limit or lose their claims. The, uh, by, by the way, you mentioned uh, they can call you guys. Why don't you give us your phone number just so people can write that down, and we'll let people know what that is. It's Mike Madden or Leland Vincent, and your number is? 216 696 one zero eight zero. Very good. Or you can give me a call sometime, and I'll put you in touch with them at four four zero two four three twenty eight hundred. Especially if you're up against a uh, one year statute of limitations, that year goes by very quickly. Just looking back at how two thousand twenty went flying by because of the COVID. Uh, how, and Michael, you mentioned something that was interesting, that you have to per, uh, perfect, perfect your right. Uh, how do you do that? You need to file the application for a claim called the First Report of Injury or Occupational Disease, and it has to be filed within one year of the date of the injury. So it's a form. You have to file it with the Bureau of workers' compensation, and pretty much everything today is being done by fax or email because being live and in person with COVID-19 has changed dramatically the way we work. Oh, I, I can see that happening everywhere. Uh, a question, when you go to the hospital, let's say you're injured at work, you go to the hospital, and when you're talking to that person who registers you at the hospital, they ask whether or not this is an injury at work, and you say yes. Uh, can the hospital file the workers' comp claim for you or submit a bill for workers' comp? And if so, does that perfect your right, even though you might not know about it? Yes. In many, in many cases, the hospital will file the first report of injury, but the injured worker must sign that document. That will start the process. Um, so the medical records will be accompanied with it, and it will be sent over to the Bureau. So it is possible that you might think the hospital submitted it, but you didn't sign anything, and your one year is ticking away. So you have to check into it. Right. That is correct. Well, with COVID-19, uh, 
the method and how these things are done, and I know I used to do some of these cases, that you end up uh, going down for hearings, and there are a lot of hearings in workers' comp, uh, but th those are all in person. How those change? We have a year into it now. What What's happening with the hearings, and how are they being done? Okay, well, prior to uh, COVID-19, um, all hearings were done at the state building personally, unless there was an extenuating circumstance where uh, a phone call was uh, permitted. But now all hearings are done by phone. Uh, the individual has sent a notice in the mail of their hearing uh, date and time, and they call in um, to a specific number, and there's a uh, password that they have to uh, put in as well, and then they get on this line, which... With a hearing officer, there could be 10 people on the line at the same time, which causes a great uh, difficulty in uh, hearing what other what's being said um, and just garbled uh, conversation. I will just add one personal story. Uh, I did have a client who had a hearing coming up, and he informed me that he couldn't call into the uh, hearing. And I asked him, well, why was that? He said, because he has a rotary phone. <laughs> so, oh. yeah, so there are people out there with rotary phones. So we had to make uh, special accommodations for me to call him and then to get him conferenced in there. Um, That's amazing. But, yeah, but um, right now there are three hearings scheduled on a uh, an hour per docket. Um, so if you call in, you may have to wait you know, uh, 20, 40 minutes until your hearing uh, is called. I have... Um, I guess the real problem in regards to, to privacy, um, because I understand that they are processing these claims and they're processing allowance and payment and treatment, but when you have a client on a call for a psychological issue, uh, there are some very sensitive issues that may be discussed which you don't want known publicly, such as you know, substance abuse, childhood trauma, or even rape. And that's information that should not be dispersed and heard by other parties who just may be on the line waiting for their claims. I think that's a big issue that we're still dealing with. Um, and in addition, sometimes at a convenience, uh, the same employer will have two or three hearings during that hour, and conceivably you could have two claimants on the phone who work in the same factory. And again, medical information is now uh, being put forth and one uh, claimant knows about another claimant's medical uh, history, which, again, should remain private. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you have any comments about that. I think it's a HIPAA violation, but the problem is that there's a conflict in laws here because the hearings are open hearings under the workers' compensation laws. So there's going to eventually be, I hope, a Supreme Court case that will resolve that conflict and maybe change the way the workers' compensation hearings are done. But until that time, we're stuck. Well, does, does the hearing officer have the right to uh, close off some of the testimony when it's sensitive, like uh, psychological testimony that's coming in from a professional, uh, to, to ask that that be like under seal or at least private? Uh, no, they don't. I mean, you review the reports, you uh, question the uh, claimant about the, the psychological condition, so there's nothing that the hearing officer can do in to you know, shut that information off from other uh, people on the line. However, there are some hearing officers who will stagger their hearings and say, well, 
uh, want this party to call in at 20 after the hour, another party call in at 40, so that that, that hearing is private. Generally, when I do have a psychological uh, issue hearing, I will request an hour docket just so that there, the privacy exists for the, the injured worker. Otherwise, am I correct in what I think I just heard is that when you call in for a hearing, you may be on the line with a bunch of other people. You have no idea who they are. Uh, that That is correct, and that uh, lends to some fairly interesting things that you uh, that's bizarre. hear on the phone. <laughs> yeah, it gets confusing. Most of the hearing officers over the last year have learned how to handle their dockets well but you still have individuals that don't understand the protocols. And these are just phone calls. They're not Zoom hearings or a similar type of visual hearings. You can't see what's going on and people just blurt things out. So it can be very distracting when you're making your presentation or your argument and someone else just starts talking on the line, throwing you off. Well, we're talking to Mike Madden and Leland Vincent, employment lawyers, talking about workers' compensation. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight. And we'll have you on again uh, if this COVID continues on to get another update. Thank you so much for joining us. Our pleasure. And we just want to tell you that we are moving offices. We're moving out of downtown Cleveland, and we are moving to Beachwood, uh, Ohio. We're going to be located at 3690 Orange Place, Suite 240 in Beachwood, Ohio. And we will be moving there April 1st. And people can always contact us at uh, 216-696-1080 for any type of workers' compensation uh, injury that they may have. Okay, well, Nick, very, very good. Thank you for having us. Thank you both. Right. Thank you. We'll, we'll be All in right. touch. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate on WHK. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, tonight we have a returning guest, Mr. John Kersey from Tri-C Cuyahoga Community College, a professor there of communications, and uh, his specialty is disinformation on the Internet and what do we do about it. Uh, professor Kersey, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. As always, good to have you back, and you help us explore the maze of trying to figure out what in the world is going on out there for real. And what's an illusion? And uh, speaking of that, let, let's sort of roll right into our first topic that I'd like to, to raise, and that is uh, the 2020 presidential election, where we have two different worlds reporting in, one world saying that it was a fair election, uh, President Biden won, and there was uh, no problem with that. And the other world says that the election was stolen there were ballots that weren't uh, counted properly, and uh, the whole thing is a sham as far as the Democratic election goes. So with that, I know you and I talked before the interview and uh, were talking about the issue of fairness in election. Uh, tell us about fairness. When we talk about fairness in an election, that's different than having an election stolen to some degree, but we're talking about fairness what is fairness in, a, in an election context, and why should we worry about it? 
that's an intriguing question that really should be the beginning point of any serious discussion about what happened in and before November of 2020, Nick, because the word fairness is an adverb, and one of the dictionary definitions would be without cheating or trying to achieve an unjust advantage. And fairness is something that we in America, we, we hold it dear. We take great pride and we try to achieve fairness for all. And when it comes to the highest expression of the democratic process, uh, that ballot box, we, sub- we uh, support that and we devote a lot of resources to ensure that elections are fair, both in our own country and around the globe. Uh, one of the biggest agencies of the State Department is called the USAID, or U.S. Agency for International Development. And almost half of the State Department, about $19 billion, is used to advance that agency. And one of its core objectives is to promote democracy, government, and peace. And if you look on their website, they say one of the most fundamental principles defining credible elections is that they must reflect the free expression of the will of the people. And that's a key question. Did the oh, so yeah, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, did the 2020 election reflect the free expression of the will of the people? And looking at it objectively. Well, did it? I mean, yeah, we, look, we, look, we've been hearing reports all over that, of course, it has. I know that the Republicans claim that the election was stolen, that Venezuelan uh, agents changed the machines and rerouted computer programs. Uh, yet the, the question is, was looking at it from 40,000 feet up, was this a fair election? Meaning, were there any unfair practices that you're aware of that we should know about? Right. And the answer is there were. And the reason why is that big tech didn't allow there to be a level playing field in the election. In ways that are both seen and unseen, it basically manipulated the playing field in favor of candidate Joe Biden. And I need to stress, that doesn't mean it was a stolen election. But when an empire in a game or a referee makes a bad call or a series of bad calls, after the game is over, we don't usually say that the contest was won fair and square. And Mm -hmm. as recently as earlier this month, Political did a poll. And in that poll, 70% of all Republican voters believe that the November 20 election was not 20 election was not fair. So uh, what made it unfair? Maybe that's the question we ought to take a look at. And again, the big culprit is big tech. Yeah. who, who 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 are the usual suspects when we say big tech? Well, let's start with Google because it's probably the biggest because it's the biggest company that's involved. Uh, Google did something according to a, um, a doctor who testified in a Senate committee hearing in 2019. Name is um, Epstein, um, Dr. Robert Epstein. And what Google did is it did something called search engine manipulation. So when you type certain things into the search engine, you think you're going to get like an unbiased come out, but you're not going to. And in fact, in three different ways, he tracked ways that Google used search engines to manipulate the outcome of the election. And he testified two years ago in Congress that he thought that in 2016, Google influenced the search engine process to give at least 2.6 million votes to Hillary Clinton in that election. And incidentally, in his testimony, he pointed out that he backed Clinton and he voted for her in the election. So he doesn't have any personal bias. But he talked about, he gave a few examples. 
um, search engine bias that when you type a word into a search engine, the words that come back might lead you to think in a certain way in terms of for a person or against a person. And in the 2018 election, his own research indicated that that could have swayed as many as 78 million votes in the hundreds of local and regional races that occurred around the country. And then another way is uh, get out the vote reminders. And I, I talked with, with great specificity about that in the 2020 election, but Google does little things on screens and we all log on to Google and some of them are go vote messages. It turns out that only people that Google identified as Democrats were getting be sure to go and vote messages. Republicans weren't getting that same message. And in the 2016 campaign, he believes that that happened uh, 800,000 to four and a half million uh, more times, depending on who the person who was was searching. And he has evidence of that. And then the last way is something that we all take advantage of. That's called autocomplete. If you're like me, you sit down in front of a and you type two or three letters to a word or a word or two words, and all of a sudden the rest of it pops up. You don't even have to type it. Google somehow senses what you're looking for. Well, it would be foolish on our part to think that that's an objective process because he did a lot of research that indicated that many times Google is actually manipulating that autocomplete function to make people think in a certain way when they shouldn't be thinking in another. Nick, if I can, I'll talk specifically yeah. about the 2020 election, because what this uh, Dr. Epstein did is he recruited about yes. 770 agents, and he put these people in battlegrounds in Arizona and Florida and North Carolina, and he basically told them to turn on your computers and do a screenshot or an actual capture of every single thing that you see for a period of days coming from Google, and they actually captured about 400,000 experiences from Google and other tech companies. And here's just one example. In these battleground states, the last full week before the election, the four days before, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the field agents who were Democrats got get-to-vote reminders from Google every time they opened up a Google search thing. Not a single Republican field agent got a get-out-to-vote reminder. Not a single one out of about 775 field agents. So that's one way where Google is slanting the playing field, so to speak, in favor of the candidates that it's, it's supporting. And bear in mind, we really mean support. There is a, an entity out there. There's an entity out there called the Center for Responsive Politics, and they have evidence uh, that Google's employees contributed five million dollars to the Biden campaign in 2020. In fact, it's the single largest corporate entity contributing to either candidate to, to, to Trump or to Biden. And in fact, the top five companies that gave money to the Biden campaign in 2020, you ready for it? Google, Go Microsoft, Apple. <laughs> At, let me try it again. Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. Big tech. All supporting that, that Biden sort of, in a big way. That all sort of begs, begs the question. And you know, we start with the fact that Obviously, uh, it, let's assume that what you're saying is proven and it's true, then that's obviously an effort to influence the outcome of an election. And our safeguards for those kinds of activities require that uh, those activities be monetized and reported as campaign contributions. Were, were any of these, we have about a minute before our break, but were any of these uh, efforts recorded as monetized donations to the campaigns? 
the Google was not. The individual employees' contributions were. But keep in mind that there are also ways where you could tilt the playing field and even report that you're doing it in a legal manner. Um, there's a nonprofit foundation that Mark Zuckerberg and his wife established, for example, based on their wealth from Facebook. And that nonprofit uh, corporation spent $300 million in the 2020 election campaign at the behest of Democratic operatives in a very coordinated get-out-the-vote effort that, again, was targeted only in Democratic cities and Democratic areas. So wow. is that legal? Well, yes. Well, hold, hold, let's, hold on, let's hold on to that question because we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Professor John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College on disinformation and the 2020 election. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Professor John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College about computer information and disinformation. And we're talking specifically tonight about the 2020 presidential election. Uh, John, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You know, as we were talking in the last segment about fairness, a level playing ground, and the role of uh, big media being involved, in big tech being involved in the election in ways that we might not think of. Tell us about who is big media and big tech and how are they influencing us at this point? Combined influence should have become obvious to anybody who was objectively looking at this by about the second week in October of the 2020 election, Nick. That was around the time when the New York Post ran a series of what became a four-part stories about President candidate Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and uh, contents on the hard drive of his laptop that indicated that uh, he had received money and contracts with people in Ukraine. He'd received money and contracts with people from China. And emails and communications back and forth indicated that one of the recipients of beneficiaries of some of this contract might have very well been his father. Two things happen. Suppress that spray. Big Tech actually suspended the post, which basically made it just about impossible to spread in a way that many people would know about it. In fact, after the election, a group called the Media Research Center did its own poll. And it indicated that 36% of the people who voted for Joe Biden in November 2020 were completely unaware of the whole story behind Biden and his laptop. So that suppression worked. The second part of that, in terms of um, big tech, big media, is the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all the other major media basically either downplayed or completely ignored that story. Normally, if one major media outlet does a story that's extremely controversial about an election campaign, the other people in the media would jump on board and try to evaluate that. That didn't case. They just kind of dismissed the story. And in fact, um, again, you could say uh, manipulation from big tech. Uh, there are people who work 
uh, under contracts for big tech, examining fact-checking and examining disinformation. And some of these people immediately came out and said, oh, this looks like a Russian disinformation campaign. Well, all those people look kind of foolish months later, or about a month after the whole presidential election happened, when both Hunter Biden and the FBI announced that, yes, indeed, there was a federal investigation into that laptop. And that's an ongoing investigation. But again, many know that. It wasn't covered in the media. Well, uh, the question, uh, let's assume for our discussion that all of this is absolutely true, that big media is definitely slanted toward the Democratic side of government. Uh, But I I think what us non-participating ordinary people want to know, why? What's in it for big tech, big government to have a Democratic influence or controlled government opposed to a Republican conservative government? If we follow the money, we're looking at there being some monetary benefit that big tech gets by having the Democrats in power. Uh, what, what, what is that? What, what's the goal? What's the benefit? Great, great question. And if you don't mind, I, I want to answer briefly in two parts because the sure. benefits are different. For big tech, the, the benefit is a, a overtly in the 1990s, uh, Congress passed and President Clinton signed into law something called the Communications Decency Act. And it actually became incorporated into the overall 1934 uh, Telecommunications Act that established the, the Federal Communications Commission. One section of that carved out a special exemption for Internet companies uh, to be exempt from First Amendment and some other provisions of federal law. And that's an exemption that these big tech companies want to hang on to with great desire, because otherwise they could be sued for libel and other things, uh, and and basically they're able to use Section 230 to evade that. So that protection is probably worth hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even a billion dollars or more to companies such as Google and Facebook. So if they can influence the election and get a side that wins that election to uh, see the, the law more in their favor and maintain that, that's going to be important to them. Big media, that's a little bit different one. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that most of the people who work in big media uh, have have a left or a democratic uh, political favorite uh, in the way that they think about things, in the way that they report about things. You might remember that in 2016, uh, again, the Center for Responsive Politics that charts this stuff pointed out that 94% of all the journalists who made campaign contributions that election gave them to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, very, very few people in the U.S. Republican candidates nowadays, and that's a trend that's accelerated over the years. Back in the Reagan time, the 20 to 25 percent of the media would support uh, a Republican candidate for president. The media have become more for a period of time. The media side, I just think it's a reflection of how they think and believe. They pay close attention to Twitter. They've probably seen multiple stories about uh, almost a war breaking out at the New York Times between the rank and file reporters and the editors. I think that the the Times is not being um, progressive enough, not being far left enough uh, for the reporters' taste, and the the editors trying to actually rein in some of the younger reporters' opinions about how to cover certain stories. So that's been going on for the past few years. Well, we're always searching to find out. Uh, where the uh, 
liberals or the left-wing people are, and uh, with regard to civil rights and all the altruistic virtues that come with being a progressive, uh, that the big media is uh, promoting that primarily for statutory protection and dollar savings. The newspapers are the same way, or there's some other topics that we're, we're missing. I think the missing part of it vis-a-vis what I call the newspapers, and not as much them anymore, although the Washington Post and the New York Times are certainly noteworthy about this, but for the the the, 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 the more MSNBC, CNN, and, and those that are kind of, again, moving to the left is just out and out uh, efforts on their parts now to completely try to censor and stop any um, divergent opinion from their opinion from being out in the mainstream right now. There was a hearing in Congress this past week where basically they were chastising cable operators and challenging them and saying, why are you carrying Fox News on your cable channel? You shouldn't be carrying Newsmax on your cable channel. And in my mind, that's a very dangerous path to go down. Uh, Those of us that studied American history back in middle school and high school remember a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that book by Harriet Beecher Stowe is considered an intermediate cause of the Civil War because it awakened many people in the North to what the horrors of life of slavery was actually like. That book was banned in many southern states in the years leading up to the Civil War, and it was punishable, a severely punishable crime, if you were a freed person in the South, and especially if you were a slave in the South, and you were caught a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. If you start transferring ideas, preventing people from sharing, like, well, you know, looking at media generally uh, since the election, it seems everything has, has calmed down since we don't have multiple uh, Twitters from, from Donald Trump. Uh, things seem to be back normalizing in Washington from a news cycle standpoint. Uh, what do you see in, in the next couple of minutes here? What, what do you see in the next year or so? Are we seeing any changes with regard to more or less disinformation? We're going to see more of it, and I think what we're going to see is an effort by big tech to uh, accelerate repression of certain types of opinion. I'm seeing accounts now that certain authors are seeing books removed from uh, being able to be sold on Amazon, for example. I'm seeing who aren't as far as big as uh, other people having kicked or even temporarily because there's a controversy over something that they posted. Um, just because Donald Trump has been removed from the social media doesn't mean that people are just going to be happy with that and stop right there. It's not a question of a person. I'm, I'm fearful that it's a question of a way of thinking that people are trying to suppress or eliminate from uh, the public square. Well, I think next time we have you on, we're going to have to talk about political correctness and where are we with that. But uh, John Kersey, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. It was wonderful talking about these things that we don't hear from any other source. So we'll have you on next month and we'll, we'll talk some more. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Stay, stay safe and stay strong. Nick. Thank you so much, John. And thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Stay healthy. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And 
Don't let my mind accompany me.